as we got to the end of the, of the academic year, the previous term, uh, for those of you who weren't here, the church went through a course together dealing with outreach and evangelism. Uh, it was something that our services were centered on on Sundays, and also our home groups were working together through a, a syllabus which uh, we obtained. And we were looking at how the church can be an outward-thinking and outreach-focused church. In the time before that, um, we spent quite a bit of time in which Ant drilled down on the fact that we are free from the law and the freedom that we have in Christ. And this morning, in a very simple way, I'd like to bring those two things together. Um, and in what I'm going to share, I, I doubt that you will receive some amazing new revelation of something you've never heard before. I'm going to be going to familiar passages of the Bible and deal with familiar topics, but I'd like to stir you up. I'd like to encourage you and I'd like to challenge you in what I'm going to share simply over the next short while. One of the things that we need to be aware of if we are desirous of growing the kingdom of God on this earth and, and, and we want to reach people, we want to change the world for Christ, is not just the techniques that we use to get the message of God out, but it's who we are and what we display to people about the reality of being part of the body of Christ. I don't know if you've ever been somewhere where the advertising's been better than the actual thing. Happened to you? I do a lot of my shopping on Amazon. Um, you know, I remember ordering something and I thought it was that big and when it arrived it was that big because photographs, if you don't read the fine print, and sometimes you, you head for something, you purchase something, you book something, you go somewhere with a high expectation. And when you get there, what's been advertised doesn't really grab you. I would say to you that we need to be cautious as the body of Christ, that we don't have great technique in telling people about Jesus, great programs, great opportunities being created. But when we actually bring people into contact with the body of Christ, they find something which is not what they need. And I will constantly go back in my own studies when looking at how we function as, as the body of Christ to the, the best example that we have. The time in the church, the, the worldwide church, in which there was the most explosive growth rate and the most effective evangelism has to be right in the very beginning of the church in Jerusalem. You know, I always come back to Peter's sermon and 3,000 people joined the church. It was a time in which the church grew. It says the Lord was adding to them daily. They grew in thousands, not in ones and twos. They grew exponentially. And also, I constantly go back to what the Scriptures tell us about what that church looked like. It was an attractive organization, not because of compromise, not because of advertising, not because of facilities, not because of programs, because of the reality of what Christ was doing in people's lives and how that made them respond to one another and to other people. So I'd like to read to you from the book of Acts chapter 2 and verse 44, a very familiar passage, and I think every passage I read to you today is going to be a familiar one. It says, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. One of the most attractive features of that church when people looked at it in, the, in their situation in the world at that time was the unity and care and concern and grace that was shown between one another. There was a unity. 
in the body of Christ. Now, I want to point out to you that if you read a bit earlier in Acts chapter 2 and see what this church was made up from, it wasn't a uniform group of people. At the time that Peter preached his sermon at Pentecost, Jerusalem was full of people from all over the world. There were Phrygians and Cappadocians and Cretans and Romans and all sorts of people from all over the place. That's why when they came out speaking in different languages, people were amazed. They said, we hear from all over the world and yet you're speaking in our language. There was a very mixed bunch of people. This early church, this church of some 3,000 people that launched out, was not a hand-picked uniform group of people. They came from different cultures, although many of them were, were Jewish by, by their, their, their religion. They came from different parts of the world where they'd been living. Amongst them would have been rich people, and amongst them would have been poor people. Amongst them would have been successful people, and amongst them would have been bankrupt. Amongst them, we find when we read on, they were even Pharisees and drunkards and prostitutes, tax collectors. They were not a homogenous, carefully selected group who were guaranteed to be in unity because we make a mistake if we think that unity will only come from us all agreeing, all of us thinking the same thing, all of us being the same. Truth of the matter is we disappoint one another. We let one another down. We don't live up to expectations. We don't always look great. Sometimes we smell bad. Sometimes we're friendly and sometimes we're not. And as I stand here, I'm fully aware of the fact that I might at some stage have offended some of you. I'm sorry, but I might have. And you might have offended the person next to you, not even knowing it. And if we rely on agreeing on everything and on everybody being right and everybody doing the right thing for our unity, it's going to break down. It's not going to be there. There is something that was required within the early church. There was something that was needed to make them this group of people that drew people in. And that's fascinating to me. At this stage, we don't hear of an organized evangelical program. And I'm not saying that's the wrong thing to have. We live in a very different world. But people just came. Because people were evangelizing in their homes, in the street, at their place of work, in the marketplace, in the temple courtyard. People were seeing this group of people and saying, we want to be there. And it wasn't because they were all the same, but there was something amazing operating amongst them, and it was the concept of grace. We will not have unity in the body of Christ without grace. And very simply put, grace is when we give people more than they deserve. And we don't give people what they deserve sometimes. We don't give them the anger, the punishment, the resentment, the offense that they maybe have generated, and we do give them the love and forgiveness and concern and lifting up that they maybe haven't earned. Grace is amazing. There have been books written called that, What's So Amazing About Grace. Great book, you should read it. But grace is amazing because grace is about caring, forgiving, loving, providing for people who don't deserve it, who haven't asked for it, who don't thank you for it. It's the way God works with us. And I want to talk to you this morning about practicalities, simple examples from the Bible of what grace should be in our lives, because I'm aware as I stand here that I am saved alone by grace through faith. I have not been able to earn my salvation. I became a Christian as a young child. 
And I've tried my best. I've blown it big times. There was a period in my university years when I turned into a proper little pig. And I tried to get away from God, and it wasn't a good time. But for most of my life, I've tried to do the right thing. But even at my best, when people might have looked at me and thought, what a fine young man. And there may have been moments like that. There wouldn't have been many. But even at my best, that was not nearly good enough to earn my salvation. I cannot do it. I'm a sinner who is saved by grace. God, in His love and His grace, has decided to do what was needed to fix me up, even though I didn't even know myself what I needed, even though I didn't deserve it, hadn't earned it, and I probably have never thanked Him properly enough for it. He decided to do it. He extended His grace towards me. So I stand here in front of you by grace. How do I respond to you in the light of that? And how do you respond to one another in the light of that? And I'd like us to look at the practicality of God's grace from a couple of well-known and well-loved Bible stories. Because I just need to say this. If we're honest, when the world looks at the church, not our church, not your church, but the church in general, the picture that's created by people's individual experiences and by media and so forth, is a group of angry, judgmental, and slightly disappointed people. That's what we come across as a lot of the time, or that's how we are presented a lot of the time. People who are very quick to be angry and to point a finger at those who don't live as we do and who we don't agree with. And when we speak to them, there's this little faint air of disappointment coming through that they don't behave like we do. You know, Something we need to bear in mind is in John chapter 3 and verse 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says, except a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot understand the kingdom of God. We have no place being angry and disappointed in people who haven't got a clue what we're going on about. Until you have met Jesus personally and been introduced to him and realized the reality of who he is, you have no idea of what it means to live in his kingdom. So can you imagine if you were somebody who did not know or believe in Jesus Christ, how strange we must seem to them? And how strange it must seem to them that we insist that they live exactly as we do, otherwise we will have nothing to do with them. And we will reject them and we will be angry with them and we will convey our righteous disappointment every time we interact with them. And how attractive would you find that? I really want to be with those people. They don't like me. I really want to be with those people. Every time I come near one of them, they make me feel deadly guilty about something and I don't understand what. Grace is an amazing thing that's extended to us by God. It's something that should flow out of our lives. And one of the best examples for me is one of my favorite stories in Luke chapter 15. We can read it, but let me tell it to you because you know it. Father had two sons. A successful family business, probably a farm. And the two sons, as was the tradition of the day, worked for him, not for a salary, but for what they needed. They shared in their father's provision. Until one day, the younger son decided that there was probably something that he wasn't getting that he wanted. Had a great life, but he decided that probably he could get more for himself. So he goes to his dad and he says, I don't really want to wait until you die before I get my inheritance. Um, I, 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 I can't be bothered to wait for you to die. So give me my inheritance now. 
And the father graciously gives him that portion that would have been his inheritance when the father died. And the son takes it and goes away and spends it with what the Bible in the old translation calls prodigal living, which is why he's called the prodigal son. He lived like a playboy and blew the money quickly. Very soon, he's run out of money. He's run out of support. The land that is in hits famine, and he lands up at the bottom of the barrel which in the story that Jesus tells is dramatically underlined by the fact that he lands up as a Hebrew feeding pigs, which is something that they really, really wouldn't like to do. And he's even in the position where he says, actually, I'm worse off than the pigs. I would like to have what they have. That's how low he goes in the story. And then he has a moment of clarity in which he says, you know what? Even the servants in my father's house have a better life than this. So if I go back and I do a deal with dad to just be a servant, doesn't have to give me back my rightful place I'll just be a servant. I will live better than I am now. And so he goes back, and I imagine, because I always I think like a comic book, I imagine him walking along rehearsing his speech, because he says, I will say, Father, I've sinned against God, and I've sinned against you, and I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your servants. And he rehearses it, and he heads for home. And the part that makes my heart jump for joy is when the Bible tells us that while he was still a long way off, his father sees him because his dad's been looking out for him. And his father doesn't wait for him to arrive. His father sets off running with all the dignity that you can try and keep together running in a robe. Down the road with his knees and ankles flashing to all who would see to grab his stinking, smelly, pig-ridden son and clasp him to his bosom and not give him a moment to make his speech before saying to the servants, restore him as a son, bring him a robe, bring him a ring, the sign of authority, the, the right to speak in the Father's name, and bring him sandals as befits a son and not a servant. It's a fantastic story because the story that I read does not show a father who grudgingly feels obliged to take his son back. That's not what I read. I don't read about a dad who goes, oh, Wally's here. I better take him in. What will the neighbors say if I don't? This guy has come to bother me. Come here, son. Listen, if you ever, 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 you know what it's like. I don't see that. I see a father who is so full of joy that his son has returned that he cannot wait to enfold him in his arms and to bring him back into fellowship because all he wants is his son. But the story goes on. If you read on from verse 25, you'll find that the other brother comes home. And when he comes home, he hears a party happening. The hi-fi system's up full ball. There's flashing lights, all sorts of things happening. And he stops the servants and he says, what's going on in there? And they say, your brother's come back and your dad's killed the fatted calf. Your dad's pushed the boat out. Your dad has reached into the savings. Your dad is throwing the biggest party ever. And instead of him being happy, he's angry. He's angry. And when his father comes out, he says, I'm not coming in because my brother doesn't deserve what you are giving him. My brother doesn't deserve it. I deserve more from you. I've always served you. I've always been right. He doesn't deserve it, and I will not come in. And his father points out to him that everything that he was ever owed by his father is his. Always has been and always will be. But his brother who was gone, who was dead to them, is back. Will he not come in? What I want to have you bear in mind about grace from this particular story is this. Failure to give grace doesn't just damage the person that you're not giving it to. If you think about it, the younger brother, hopefully now showered of the pig dung and so forth, was in there with the fatted calf. 
and the rejoicing and the Father. And the brother who refused to forgive or show grace, who was angry because he was given what he didn't deserve, was outside in the cold and hungry. Grace is good for you. Grace brings you in. He had the opportunity to be in that family again. Him and his brother and his dad restored the family, everything together. And he's outside, bitter and twisted and cold and hungry and angry. Grace is good for you. Grace is not just good for the people that you extend it to, but grace brings you into the positions that God needs you and wants you to be. It is so easy to hold a grudge. I know. It's one of the things that I have to battle with in my life. You hurt me. Little thing sits there. Next time I see you, it's still sitting there. And it's by the grace of God that I've got to work against it and say, I don't want to do that. And I want to encourage you. Grace is good for you. It's not just good for the other person. Let me give you another example. In Matthew chapter 20, let's go and have a look there. There's a story recorded. And Jesus is talking and he says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard, and he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Fair price, met them at the, the marketplace, standing around guys who didn't have work. He said, anybody needs work? A bunch of them said, yeah. He said, I'll give you a denarius for a day's work in my vineyard. They said, that's a great va- uh, value for money or uh, value for our work. We're happy with that salary. And they joined him and they went to the vineyard. About nine o'clock in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you also, if you like, go to my vineyard and I will pay you whatever's right. He said, I'll pay you a decent salary. Didn't agree a salary with them, but he says, I'll be fair with you. And they say, fine. And they head off to the vineyard. He went out again at about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. Sends more people and says, go work in my vineyard. So some have been there since nine in the morning. Some have been there since noon. Some have been there since three o'clock. It says he, at about five o'clock in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around and he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? And they said, because no one's hired us. And he said, that's no problem. I'll hire you. Go to the vineyard. And when evening came, probably about an hour later, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. And the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. Wow, that's what he promised the guys that were going to work all day. So they got a full day's pay. And it says, so when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last only worked one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who has hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Are you envious because I am generous? It was jolly unfair. Come on. They worked from 9 o'clock until 6 o'clock for a denarius, and the other guys worked an hour for a denarius. It was jolly unfair, but it was jolly generous. It was jolly generous. It was the kindness and the love of the vineyard owner to say, I will pay you a full day's wage 
even though you haven't worked as much as everybody else. But here's the problem. The other workers were angry. Isn't that the cause of so much trouble within families, within communities, within countries, and within churches? Why has that person got something that I didn't get? Why, why should they get something that I think I've worked for? Why should they be blessed in the same way? And you're all looking at me with cherubic faces there, but you've all done it. Come on. You've all done it. It's a destructive thing. Grace is good for you, and grace is incredibly generous. You don't get what you deserve with grace. You get more than you deserve. You don't get just. God doesn't, sta- you know, so often we get this justice. You know, the, the, the statue of the blind lady with, with the, the scales weighing things. Because our justice is measured on you do this much, you get punished that much. You do this good, you get that much reward. Everything is measured on a scale. God has thrown those scales away. Jesus blew those scales apart. Jesus didn't buy us a percentage of salvation. Jesus didn't buy us a timeshare salvation. He didn't buy us something which there's different levels of salvation. When Jesus died on the cross, he brought us in as children of God, entitled to the fullness of the love of God. And God loves to give. I grew up with the perception of God as an angry old man with a long beard who stood at the gates of heaven checking on your credentials to come in to bop you with a baseball bat if you didn't measure up. I don't have that impression of God anymore. I have the impression of God as a father running down the road with his robes flapping around his knees to go and grab his stinking son into his arms and love him. That's God. That's grace. So how are you with your neighbor when they're noisy? How are you with your political opponents when they vote in or out of Brexit? How are you with your wife when she makes you late for church? Not today. (laughs) We're here nice and early today. How are you with your children when they do it again? And you've told them not to do it again, and they get the same result as the first time, chaos. And they deserve the wrath and the anger and the rejection. And they deserve to be ridiculed. How are you with people who don't have the same perception of Jesus as you and mess up and live lives that are not what you believe in and are disgusting to you? How much grace are we prepared to extend to bring those people to an understanding of what needs to change in their lives? One strike and they're out? Two? Let's move on to another well-known story. Very well known. John chapter 8 and verse 3. And I've just gone to the wrong one. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. Now, what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. 
And I heard someone say he thinks he was writing their sins down and the names of their girlfriends and things like that. Um, don't know what he wrote in the sand. But it says, one by one they began to move away. And when she looked up, there was no one left. And he said to her, who's there to accuse you? She said, they've gone. He said, I don't either go and sin no more. Jesus didn't condone her sin. The law said she could be stoned. The law of Moses said she could be stoned. The Bible, as they knew it, said she could be stoned. Society and their culture said she should be stoned. But the grace of God went above that. And Jesus looks not down at saying, I have the right to punish you. He looks down and says, I need to save you. I need to lift you up. Grace is good for you. Grace is incredibly generous. And grace over overrides rights and laws and entitlements and vengeance. Jesus didn't need to make a point of punishing her. He needed her to stop sinning. Do you think she went back to adultery after this? I very much doubt it. Because the love of God had drawn her in. Very quickly, I'm not going to read it, but a man dies on a cross next to Jesus. You've all read the story, and especially around Easter, Jesus is hanging on a cross with criminals on either side, men who were guilty of the very things that he was accused of. And one of them is swearing and shouting at him. The other one says to him, you need to be quiet. This is the guy that's the real deal. He is what he says he is. He's done nothing wrong. He's innocent. He is. Above him was written, this is the Christ. And the one guy on the cross next to him acknowledges that. And he says to Jesus, help me. And Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the first convert, as it were, of the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you something. What did he do between becoming forgiven and dying? Nothing. He didn't have an opportunity to go back and fix up on the sins that he'd done. He didn't pay back the things that he'd stolen. He didn't go and apologize to the families of the people that he'd compromised. He didn't do anything. He just asked for forgiveness, and the grace of God and of Jesus Christ forgave him his sins. And we will meet him in heaven. Man, he made it by the skin of his chinny chin chin. But he made it. He's there because of grace. Grace does not require restitution and repayment. If you're only going to forgive and love people because you know that at some point they're going to do what you want, they're going to forgive you, you're going to forgive them, they're going to give back what they've taken, they're going to fix what they've broken, that's not grace. That's not how Jesus treats us. How do we treat others? Grace does not require repayment or restitution. It's given freely. I want to read one final thing before I close to make a point. John chapter 1 is a, is a very well-known passage. In the beginning was the word. You know that. And as we read on in John chapter 1 from verse 14, it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only God who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. 
Out of His fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And John says, this one who will come after me bringing grace actually supersedes me because he was before me. Can I say this to you? Grace has not replaced the law. Grace is not the replacement. Grace is the original. Grace was the way God first worked with mankind. Grace and forgiveness, concern for others, that love that gave undeservedly was the way God started out. Man's sin brought sin into the world. God gave us a chance to try use the law to fix it. We couldn't do it. And God comes and through Jesus, he reinstates grace. We're not dealing with a replacement strategy. God didn't look at mankind and say, I've tried everything else. I'll need to invent something new. If I can't beat him, I'll just join him. Here's some grace. I'll just give up on the whole deal and I'll forgive them all. Grace was the way God started. And grace is the way God will finish. It's in his nature in the way that he treats me. And my, my encouragement and my challenge to myself and to you this morning is this. As we as a family here in Forest Town, and those of you visiting as you and your churches, look to become people who reach out. Yes, we need to know the gospel story. We need to know the facts of salvation. We need to be able to share them with people. We need to create opportunities. We need to find ways. We need to be ready, willing, and able to share the gospel. But we also need to be the gracious body of Christ. I said to you that John 3, 3 says to us that except a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Until someone has met with the reality of Jesus, they will not understand the kingdom of God. We can be as angry with them as they like. But to somebody who has no perception of a Savior God, why should they live like we do? How are they going to meet the person of Jesus Christ on the earth? That's who they're going to meet. We are the body of Christ. We are the representation of Christ on this earth. And we need to show the same love and the same grace in the way that we approach one another and others in the, in, in the world in order to introduce them to the reality of Christ because it is Jesus Christ who will change them. Not just what we say about him, but as when they get to see him and to know him. He changes them. He said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. My job is to be Jesus to the world. That's your job. How did he get to trust us with that? Whoa. But he has. He has. And one of the things that we'll need to carry in our, our, our armament that we carry is the grace of God through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together and ask him to help us. You know, the wonderful thing I always feel obliged to say when we've been teaching about God's word and his expectation of us as his families, he extends that grace even when we don't, when we fall down, when we mess up, when we don't do what we've been talking about this morning. He doesn't go, ah, no grace, look at them. I'll, I'll put them in the second team. 
His grace comes back time and again, even when we don't do it, when we fall down, when we are ungracious, when we do get angry, when we do get judgmental, when we do get bitter. He still loves us, forgives us, and he sends us out again and says, go and be me to the world. Let's trust him for that. Father, I thank you for your grace that saved me as a sinner. I thank you for your grace that secures my salvation. I thank you for your love. I pray, Lord, that we will show your love and grace to one another, that we will model that to the world, that we will be like your early church where people were added daily, that they'll be added to us daily, not just because of what we say, but because they see the reality of your presence in our communities. Help us to show grace in our families. Help us to show grace in our church communities. Help us to show grace in our towns, in our cities, in our countries. Thank you, Lord, for the constant and wonderful example we have. Amen.